Well, good morning, good morning. And uh, some of you, I don't know if the time change threw you off. I hope it didn't, since we didn't. So some of you try to use excuses. But for some of you, it's good news. I know today is that uh, football games don't start till 11, our time. So that's some benefit to that. Thank you, sir. But really, uh, just glad you're here. So thankful that you're here this morning. And continuing in our series of Acts, today, Acts chapter 21, and where Paul is on the journey back to Jerusalem. And this whole journey through 20 and 21 in that range is going to take about, best we can tell, about 30 days. And in chapter 20, as we read last week, as we talked about last week, he and his entourage were hurrying to Jerusalem to try to get there before Pentecost. The last thing we read last week was they were, and we'll read it again today, is that they were leaving the leaders of Ephesus and Miletus. And the word says they were torn away from them. They had to tear themselves away from them. So that's where we're going to start today. Acts chapter 21, and we're going to go verses... uh, 1 through 15. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kaz. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Petura. We found a ship crossing over, over to Phoenicia, Phoenicia went, aboard, went on aboard and set sail. After sighting Cyprus passing to the south of it, we sailed to, on to Syria. We landed in Tyre where our ship was, uh, was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We continued on our voyage to Tyre and landed in uh, Ptolemy, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed for the, with the house, uh, at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to, uh, to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am not ready, I'm not only ready to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Wherever he went, I think most of these folks know if Paul was headed to Jerusalem, there were going to be difficulties. There were going to be challenges or problems along the way. Obviously, we, as we read Paul's life over this, especially in the book of Acts here, but in other places, he, he faced challenges everywhere he went, uh, from shipwreck to uh, beatings to almost being killed and jailed. We know that. But there was something probably different about this one. Now, obviously, we just read last week, obviously, if you were here, we talked about last week in Acts 20, he's telling the people, the leaders of Ephesus, I'm, 
probably not coming back. I'll probably never, ever see you again. So it's a deep, deep farewell. The goodbyes are prolonged. I mean, it's, it's hard. I mean, I almost wanted you to, I wanted to read almost that whole scene on the beach. Their entire, and just almost smell the salt air. Feel the wet sand as you plop down. And you kneel and you begin to pray. And a prayer like you probably never prayed before because you know this. We know what's facing this man that we love so dearly. And we've got to let him go. Probably prayed a little different than they do other times. Have you ever been there? Where all of a sudden you pray, but all of a sudden you get serious about praying. (laughs) It's serious. What I love about this this morning, hopefully I can help us kind of walk through it a little bit this morning, is that Paul, I mean Paul, Luke gives significant details here on these last days of this journey. Why would he go to the trouble of giving so many details in here? I want to explore that a little bit today, and hopefully it will be of help. And, and again, we don't know all of Luke's reasoning here, but hopefully we can think through it a little bit. Well, first I'm going to say this uh, about why I think the detail is, is to see the magnitude of the network of churches that had happened. Now, it's been about 25 to 30 years when this is going on. So to see the magnitude of this. They're over in here. See, there's Ephesus. Uh, Miletus is where they're starting from. To, they're leaving there today. And they're going to cause, and and they're going to go to Rhodes, and they're going to go to Petura, and they're going to go south of Cyprus, and there's Tyre, and there's Ptolemais, and there's Caesarea, and then they will walk the rest of the journey there. Takes about, actually backing up a little bit, uh, it actually started this journey to Troas, I don't remember exactly the miles, but it's about 30 days it takes them to make this journey, give or take. But what I think is awesome is to see all the places that there are churches. Let's just pull in here. Oh, yeah, there's disciples. Let's just pull in here. Oh, there's disciples. We're going to avoid going to Ephesus because they're going to keep us too long if we go there. So we're going to go to Miletus and make them come to us. Multi-site? Church planning? Without the Internet? Without social media? This is fascinating to me. Fascinating that they grew this church. This movement grew this way without all the tools we have today and the church in America is shrinking. When you get a group of courageous, obedient people that ultimately they will say here, not my will in many ways, but his will be done. Something magnificent happens. A movement. A movement. So that's one of the reasons I believe Luke gave us a little more detail here because he could have just skipped around. There's other places just kind of goes, yeah, they went there and they went there and they went there and they went there and they kind of went there. And, and you know there's a lot of story in between there and there, right? There's a lot of things going on. Paul's on a ship. wonder what kind of revival was going on on that ship. And from ship to ship. A lot of stories. But he includes these details. And one of the reasons I think he included these details is because there were deep, intimate relationships in these places that he went to. I mean, in Ephesus it says, when they were leaving Miletus, 
they were torn. And again, it says, entire all the disciples accompanied Paul to the boat, kneeling on the beach, and they prayed. And I don't even know, like I said, it needs to be capitalized that they prayed. But I thought one of the other interesting notes that Luke includes here is that all the members of the Christian families, wives and children, came. I wonder what kind of impact that had on those children. That they weren't, you know, you know, to be seen and not heard, well, not, well, there it was to not be seen and to not be heard. But in the Christian church, in what they did, they brought the little children there. They wanted them to get a feel and a sense for the weight of that moment. As they knelt and prayed and cried out for Paul leaving. And I think one of the reasons... Be- you could give details like this. I want to share just a, why I think Luke may have written it this way. Was, For instance, if I told you on a story like this, if I told you on October 1st of this year, we got a phone call, Jan and I did, and because of that phone call, about five days later, we caught a plane from, from Phoenix to Little Rock, rented a car, and we rented that car, and we drove to Hooks, Texas, and went to Hooks, Texas, and there for a day, and I drove up to Wicks, and Wicks, Arkansas, and then back to back to Hooks and then we went to Tyler, Texas for a few days and then after a few days I went back to Wicks and then a few days after that I went back to Little Rock and we flew back home. Okay. You know what? All that's true. That all happened. Or I could tell you at 10.50 on October, 10.50 p.m. on October 1st we get a phone call from my brother-in-law that my nephew has been killed in action in northern Iraq. And because of that phone call, five days later, we get on a plane and we fly to Little Rock where we rent a car. And for days we spend with my brother-in-law and sister-in-law. And there at the candlelight vigil, and I could even go more details, but my point is this. It's a, both are true, right? Both are true, but one of them gives you a, a different feel for the relationships that happened along the way. It gives you more detail, gives you a little more weight of what's going on. I think that's what Luke's wanting you to hear here. There's a little more weight to this. There's a little more depth to this than just telling you where we went. And other times he does, and I'm sure there was more depth there too. But for some reason, in this passage of Scripture, Luke chooses to tell it at a deeper level. Paul repeats, really almost in all of his letters, just about... And I, I didn't survey it, but I, you hear it over and over. About his love for the people. I love 1 Thessalonians 2.8. It's in the New Living Translation. He says, we loved you so much that we shared with you not only the good news, but our own lives too. Let me say this. It is not enough just to share the good news. Stand on a street corner with a blowhorn yelling at people, turn or burn. Doesn't sound like much good news in the first place when you do that. But Paul is urging, and he's repeated it, to not only share the good news, but share your life also. In this situation, these people were reflecting back in this passage of Scripture how much they loved him too. But I think it probably started on how much he loved them. 
Something else I see here was that as Luke wrote specifically, an interesting point he made was, I would say that he wanted us to, be, to, to, to understand that the Spirit was poured out on all people. See, when Paul stayed in Caesarea with Philip the evangelist, where Philip had settled there, and many of you immediately know who Philip is, but, but if you were not been here part of Acts, or I don't know how much we even mentioned Philip, I don't think we really did, but Philip, you'll see back, if you want to go back and look in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 8, Philip is one of the first ones that, well, in Acts chapter 6, the Grecian widows were not being waited on, if you will. And so they said, choose from among you seven men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Now, wisdom meaning divine clarity. Divine understanding God and having clarity about it. Philip is one of those guys, along with Stephen. Many of you know, and there's others that are listed there in Acts chapter 6. But with wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. And why is he called the evangelist? Well, there's maybe many reasons, but one of them is we see him going to the Samaritans. We also see him with the Ethiopian eunuch and baptizing him immediately. But for somewhere along the way, he ends up at Caesarea, that Roman headquarters. And over the next 20 years, there's a pretty good, or 25 years, however long this time span is, there's a great chance he's been evangelizing the whole time. But what I thought was interesting, okay, we can add that. Here Philip is from way back when, now showing up again. And he and Paul may have had this relationship. I'm not sure how in-depth it had been up to that point, but he's staying there. But an interesting inclusion by Luke is Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, they don't prophesy in this passage of Scripture. Agabus does, but they don't. So why is Luke giving detail about his four unmarried daughters? The word prophesy here, a bit prophesied, is it's usually referring to the fact that they reveal the message or mind of God in a particular situation. It's possible Luke is just reminding us. And why for some it's significant and others it's not. That the women in the early church were recognized as having the gift of prophecy and it was really important. We see it throughout the New Testament of the women being in leadership. And I love the fact that in Acts chapter 2 as we preached on back in June, seems like forever ago now. When Paul talks about the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, his main point is not the particular form that the outpouring of the, of the Spirit took, like wind or fire or languages or tongues. That is not his main point as he preaches his first sermon. His main point is, besides repentance, what we talked about last week, was that the Spirit was poured out on all people, on all flesh. No longer just prophets or rabbis, but sons and daughters, older and younger. Not just the wealthy, but slaves. Men and women would have the same opportunity to work in the fullness of the Spirit. As I've said here before, and I think it needs to be shouted from the mountaintop sometimes because I think we get pushed into the corner as, as, as believers and as a church, the Christian church is. That the Christian church was the first institution in history 
to bring together on equal footing Jews and Gentiles, men and women, free and slave. That's a big deal. That is a big deal. That because of the Christian church coming to earth, if you will, lack of a better way to say it, but, but being a movement, we began to set on pattern what most people, even this day in liberal, would say is, hey, I agree with that. Isn't it funny? But the Christian church is the one that instigated and brought this to life. As Paul writes in Galatians 3, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Nazarenes, Methodists, Salvation Army, and the Holiness Movement, of which especially Nazarene and Salvation Army have been a part of, have always recognized the spiritual equality of women. Some of our earliest preachers and evangelists of the holiness movement were women. We believe that Scripture's Old Testament and New Testament recognize women in leadership roles. I just appreciate Luke putting that in there. He didn't have to. They really don't do anything here. But he includes it. And just let me say this. Are there contextual scriptures and certain cultural circumstances even today that might limit limit women in church leadership? Yes. But let me tell you this. They limit themselves out of the fruit of the spirit of forbearance. And forbearance is this. I give up my right to be right for the good of the kingdom. I give up my right in this circumstance around the world culturally for the good of the kingdom, for the good of the movement. But that flows out of their fruit of the Spirit. So we believe it is society contextually that oppresses women, not Christ, the Bible, or the church. He included it. The other thing I see here is that great... Well-meaning friends and family can give conflicting counsel from what the Lord is saying to you. (laughs) That ever happened to anybody? What the Lord is saying to you, good, well-meaning, well-intentioned friends and beloved members of your family with the right heart can give you conflicting things of what you believe the Spirit is saying to you. Paul was in the bullseye of that in this passage of Scripture. We all know it's understandable that people who have the most vested in us, who have our best interest at heart, are looking out for our well-being, right? That makes sense. We can't push back on that. We can't fight that. And as you see from Agabus and to even other places, even entire before we even read about Agabus, the Spirit was repeatedly warning, don't go to Jerusalem. And you could read this, and I've read commentaries on it this week as I was working on it. There are different theologians over time going, this is very confusing. 
They're very conflicted about this passage of Scripture because they're saying, now wait a second, Luke is writing that these people are being led by the Spirit. And Paul is on the other side saying, I'm being led by the Spirit. And, and as I read, some of them don't come to a good, they don't know what the conclusion is. And when you look at it in the, in, in the Greek, again, these friends or just other disciples, whatever, are, 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 are pleading with him going, don't go to Jerusalem. Now, would say this, Luke has got a little bit of hindsight. He's not writing this like he's there. He's not writing, putting it in that day, you know, and going, okay, this is what happened today, and you're getting that feed right then. He's got hindsight to look back and go, okay, we did that, but guess what I can watch? Here's where Paul went. <laughs> and this is how God... It may not clear up everything. And what is interesting is, is because Luke still puts it in here, knowing that. It makes it even more conflicting in some ways. Because it literally, in the Greek it says, this is how they would say it, I'm not going to try to blow your ears, stop going to Jerusalem! That is the interpretation of this. Led by the Spirit, stop going to Jerusalem. Now Paul's response to this prophecy and this pleading was consistent with his position all along, right? Last week we talked about the Apostle Paul was not suicidal or was he reckless. Acts 20, 24 says, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. If my life being taken is part of the course of race I'm supposed to run, that is what it is. Paul asked them a question. And I think it's very emphatic too. What are you what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. Now I love when scripture just goes, okay guys, you're killing me, Smalls. You're killing me. You're killing me. Man, okay, how many times do we have to go over this? I am going to Jerusalem. I have been warned. Let's everybody get that out of the way. The Holy Spirit, he says in another, over here I think, the Holy Spirit tells me it's going to happen. You don't even have to tell me. I get it. But this pleading and whimpering and all this stuff is killing me. It literally means they're like taking, like if you're going to try to wash clothes, the literal translation, the best I could tell is, is when back in the day they would take clothes out to wash them and they would beat the clothes with rocks in order to make them white. That's what he's saying. He said, I feel like you're beating me with these rocks. Please stop. <laughs> now one lesson that could be learned here is if your goal in life is to avoid suffering, you will also potentially avoid going to your Jerusalem. I 
I see it in marriage counseling, people going, well, you deserve to be happy. Who said that? Show me, show me. I dare you, show me. Good friends will give you counsel on that. What I don't like about that is it takes out the potential that God can take circumstances and change people's lives and heal broken things that we all believe in here. I say we all believe in. I believe in, and I hope you do. <laughs> I love the song. I, can't, I think it's Matthew West. I'm not sure. I think the, song, the theme of the song is broken. You use broken things. If you use broken things, I'm all yours. <laughs> I love that song. If you use broken things, then I'm all yours. Paul knew that. Paul knew who he had been, what he had done, and the flaws he had. But he knew God could use broken things. And if your desire for your loved one is to escape suffering, then you will counsel accordingly, and it's understandable. I'm not saying it's not understandable. It's human nature, good, good side of human nature. I don't mean human nature as in the fallen part, which it could be, but I'm just saying we all want, if, we, if, we're, if we're right-thinking, functional, we want the best for the ones we love. And safety is one of those things. But I've said here before, we should all get a clue that when our central metaphor is our belief is an instrument of death, it should give us a clue that something's going on. I think about our friend Brother Paul Sr. years ago when he started that little bitty church in 1969 in North Little Rock, Arkansas in an all-black neighborhood. And he being white, of course, many, most of you know, but him going there and starting with just a few little black kids. And how many times he was called a fool. A fool. And I'm sure Paul Sr. understood that most of the people giving advice really in most ways were looking out for the best of him. They didn't want him to be harmed. They didn't want him to be embarrassed. They didn't want him to be frustrated. They didn't want him to be any of those things. They were wanting the best for him. But as the Apostle Paul and as, as Brother Paul, they were intent on going anyway. But I love what Luke states here as he's gone back and forth with Paul in this and we've been pleading with him and all that. Then Luke says it, I love it. He said, when, we would not, when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up. We gave up. We just gave up. And said, the Lord's will be done. And what I love is we talk about here many times through crucial conversations and, 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 and depth three in relationships. One of the things we talk about is when you, when you have these kind of intimate, deep relationships, uh, you can have significant tension and passion within the discussion without separation. These people are not further apart. These people are not strained in relationship. They're not because they loved each other so much. They come to the point going, we can have these, but it not only did not separate us further, we grew closer together. 
That's what great community and intimate community is about. Disciples had to reach the conclusion that the will of God overrode their concern for Paul. People ask me many times when I put Allie on planes, of course we've sent her to South Africa to some places there, different places, specifically about Allie at times. I said, do you worry? Do, do you worry about her? Does it, do you worry? You wake, stay up or wake up? No, I don't anymore. <laughs> I just put her on a plane and say bye, basically, because it's God's, God's will in these places she's supposed to go, and, and, and it would be any, any circumstance. We've put, we know here we've been praying for Jordan, what God's doing with her in Papua Indonesia, and you know, those kind of things. God, if it's your will, then you have all this figured out. And the last one is this. It's being in ministry with the compelled. See, Paul understood his mission, and he had to be true to the leading of the Spirit. In Acts chapter 20, as we read last week, Paul says, And now, and now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem without knowing what will happen to me there. He knew the same Spirit that warned him compelled him. The same Spirit's going, hey, here's what's coming, baby. Oh, yeah, baby, keep going, keep going. Finish the race, finish the race. I need you to finish the race. Don't turn back. The same Spirit, not contradicting, the same Spirit. Here's the problem with ministering with people who are compelled. Let's put the five C's up. And you know it's something we've been working on for a while. We'll see where the Lord's going to lead us on all this. But look over to the far right. And I don't mean politically or socially, okay? Please. (laughs) Okay, I'm not trying to say that. Okay, just all my disclaimers here. But the compelled... And we can, and again, I'm not trying to, these are self-identifying, by the way, in many ways, but also affirmed by the body, too. But the compelled, they are focused and intentional. They have a holy discontent, and a holy discontent, as we define here, it's whatever breaks God's heart or makes Him angry, He puts on your heart and tells you to do something about it. And the last one on underneath that is, they come to the conclusion saying, not on my watch. Whatever it takes, whatever I've got to do, whatever length I have to go to to follow God's will for that particular thing, not on my watch. Here's the problem with the people in Compelled. They seem unreasonable. (laughs) They're unreasonable people. I think Jesus was compelled because the people who loved him most were trying to talk him out of going where he was going. But he ends up in the garden saying what? Father, not my will, but yours. Some mention here that Acts 21 is Paul's Gethsemane. 
He had an opportunity here to swerve. Had an opportunity here to turn a little bit and still would have blessed people. I'm not saying he wouldn't have had the anointing or the blessing, but he wouldn't have gone to his Jerusalem. Back to the relinquish that Gina mentioned this week in our Thursday prayer. It means to cease to keep a hold of, to let go of. Not my will, but your will, Lord. Your will be done, Lord. We all know that's a dangerous prayer. I shouldn't say we all know. Let me give you a heads up if you don't know. It's a dangerous thing to say. Not my will. Let me ask you today. Have you had your Gethsemane? I think we have multiple Gethsemanes over time in many ways. Maybe you need to do that daily. I would say sometimes hourly. But there are significant game-changer moments along your life where you have real deep Gethsemanes. Where it's time to let it go. Where you could say, Lord, you could remove this cup from me. I know you could, but not my will, but your will. I was reading this week, preparing for this, and I leave the five C's up there just a second, bring that back up. About a man who I believe fits number five, or fits the fifth one over. It's a man named William Booth. Many of you know William Booth. You can go ahead and put the logo up there if you want to, of the Salvation Army. 2015, it was the second rated, I guess, but also grossing, and I don't mean that in a profitable way, but except for the kingdom. Paul said last week, I preach a profitable gospel. That's what the Salvation Army is trying to do. He's a profitable, not in profit, not in profitable as in finance, but profitable to the soul. That's what the Salvation Army does. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, they're, they're like first cousins to us, if not brothers, in the sense of theology. They are a denomination, if you didn't know that. They have women leading. They have different... I don't know if you know we knew that or not, but anyway, I think they raise about $2 billion a year. And it has the word salvation in it, by the way. <laughs> in the United States, the second... I think 2016, it may, be, it may be dropped to four. I think it changes back and forth. But it has salvation in the name. Of, again, did I say that already? <laughs> 150 years. 19, 1865, I think, William Booth started it. You know what he said? Don't, don't, give it, don't put that quote up yet. The other small quote that I have here. The quote was, uh, it says, Go straight for souls... He said, go for souls, go straight for souls, and go for the worst. These crazy compelled people mess you up. They're unreasonable. Let me say it again. Go for souls, go straight for souls, but go for the worst. Eventually, William Booth was asked, 
What was the secret to the success of the Salvation Army? And he says this. Let's see the quote. Do you have a quote? You don't have a quote. I got a quote, and I'm going to lay it on you. He said, I'll tell you the secret. God has had all there was of me. Now let that sink in a second. Some of us pray for, I want all of God. You ain't never going to be able to handle all of God. You can't handle it. But here's the deal. God has had all there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I. Men with greater opportunities. But from the day I got the poor of London on my heart, I'd call that a holy discontent, and caught a vision of all Jesus Christ could do with them, on that day I made up my mind that God would have all of William Booth there was. And if there is anything of power in the Salvation Army today, it is because God had all the adoration of my heart all the power of my will, and all the influence of my life. William Booth had a Gethsemane. The church grew, as we see. It was built around deep, intimate relationships both ways, to the leaders and to those they led. There are times it seems like the spirit is conflicting, but not, not really. Even in Paul's life, I'm warning you, but I'm compelling you. And when you become compelled, just like Jesus couldn't explain to his disciples why he had to, I'm sure there are times Paul's going, I don't know how to tell you why. I just have to. I just have to. I have to. I'm not being forced to. I just have to. 